Use your head. That's what we tell ourselves when facing a tricky problem or difficult project. But a growing body of research suggests that we've got it exactly backwards. What we need to do, says Annie Murphy-Paul, is think outside the brain. A host of extra neural resources, the feelings and movements of our bodies, the physical spaces in which we learn and work, and the minds of those around us, can help us focus more intently, comprehend more deeply, and create more imaginatively. Hey folks, welcome back to the Evolving Leader Podcast. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. How are you feeling today, Mr. Gomes? I'm feeling really grateful for our guest coming up. I read her book in the summer and I loved it, absolutely loved it. It, Mm. um, I I got my daughter to read it. She's, as you know, she's studying her uh, master's at Imperial in experimental neuroscience and she loved it as well. So, and I knew you did as well. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, for sure. It was one of my absolute favorite reads of the year. Yeah, I'm just excited. Let's just jump in. Um, yeah. So today we're joined by Annie Murphy-Paul. Annie is a magazine journalist and book author. She writes about the findings of cognitive science and psychology and how they can help us to think and act more intelligently. She's a Yale alumni and a graduate of the Columbia University School of Journalism, a former senior editor of Psychology Today magazine, and she was awarded the Rosalind Carter Fellowship for Mental Health Journalism. Her writings appeared in New York Times, um, Slate, Discover, uh, Obe, the Oprah Magazine, and many other publications. She uh, is the author of multiple books, including her most recent book, which we've already referred to today and here to talk to her about, called The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. Annie, we're delighted that you're here. Welcome to The Evolving Leader. Oh, thank you, guys. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm so tickled by your kind words and and the fact that that John you wrote you read my book on uh, on vacation that's a real compliment <laughs> <laughs> well I have to say it wasn't a hard book to read on holiday it was very it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it blends so many different kind of strands into it that it, it each page was uh, was just delightful to read um, can we start a bit with a bit of your background and the origin of how you became interested in write about the biological and social sciences Sure. So I've been a science writer my whole career, and I've I've pretty much exclusively written about psychology and, and human behavior, which to me is just endlessly interesting, the most interesting thing in the world. And about 10 years ago, I became interested in particular in the science of learning. I have two kids, and at that point, they were starting school, and I got very interested in what they were learning, how they were learning, how their teachers were teaching them. And I set off uh, to find, I'm, I'm a little sheepish to say, a kind of unified theory of learning, like how does human learning work? And I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you this, I never found it. <laughs> um, but along the way, I did discover this idea, which eventually became the basis of my book. And, and I should say the extended mind, the theory of the extended mind is not my idea. It's an idea that I borrowed from two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers. And when I read their seminal 1998 article introducing the theory of the extended mind, it pulled together a whole bunch of threads that I'd been noticing in my, re- my work on the science of learning, namely that all kinds of, there's all kinds of thinking that happen not inside the brain um, in the usual way that we, we imagine it to happen. Um, of course, the brain is always centrally involved in thinking, but um, to imagine that it all happens inside the skull is um, Clark and Chalmers were arguing was a is a misconception. And in fact, so much of our thinking processes 
involve our bodies, our physical surroundings, our relationships with other people, and our tools, both analog and, and digital. And it's, um, it's a real blind spot to think that the brain is doing it all on its own. And moreover, once we realize that all these outside the brain resources are so critically involved in thinking, then we can use them much more intentionally and skillfully and not rely on our poor beleaguered brain to, to do it all. And that is a, a real message of hope because so many of us are beleaguered and overwhelmed and uh, distracted and uh, burnt out. So can we just look at the kind of big building blocks of your book in terms of what are the components of the extended mind and maybe one or two little examples of the research that you've uh, uncovered in talking to neuroscientists and psychologists that really bring this to life? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So I, I organized the book in my mind. It was kind of concentric circles moving outward, you know, starting with the body, the most intimate parts of ourselves, uh, outward to our immediate physical surroundings and then to our, our social network. So with regard to that first section about thinking with the body, I was so fascinated to learn about um, this. And this is a word I hadn't I hadn't known before interoception. I'm sure you're, yeah. some of your listeners at this point have heard about it. I had not heard about it. Of course, we've all heard about gut feelings and the idea we all, we're all familiar with the notion that there, there seems to be a kind of knowledge or wisdom that emerges from the body that's not quite conscious or, or top down. Um, and it was fascinating to me to learn that this is the subject of, of, of a lot of very exciting and dynamic research right now. Um, looking at what these signals are, these internal cues, where they come from, how they're processed, and really what information they carry, you know, what they can tell us. And what I came to understand was that, uh, you know, as we go through our daily lives, we're taking in so much information, um, processing it, storing it far more than we could, um, you know, process or store on a conscious level, but we are doing so on a non-conscious level. And then, so to get access to that information, uh, it's the body that kind of, um, as I say in the book, is kind of rung like a bell. You know, when we encounter a situation that we've encountered before, the body um, sends us cues and messages. It's kind of tapping us on the shoulder or, or tugging us, uh, tugging on our sleeve, if you will, to let us know, you know, this is this is a situation you've encountered before, and here's how to handle it. Um, so I report in the book on this fascinating study looking at um, financial traders in London, actually, um, who, and it turns out, you know, I would, I would have thought that finance would be the ultimate kind of big brain, <laughs> cerebral kind of um, undertaking, because it involves so much, you know, crunching of numbers. And, um, but it turned out that the most successful traders in this study, the ones who made the most money, were those who were most in tune with their bodies, who were most if most ac who most accurately identified when their hearts were beating, and that heartbeat detection test is a kind of proxy for um, bodily awareness. Um, so, you know, the other you mentioned, uh, John, that, um, that there's there's something hopeful about the the idea of the extended mind, and I totally agree. And in this case, um, you know, although there is a really wide variety of places along the spectrum where people fall in terms of their interoceptive awareness, it turns out that this is a skill that can be cultivated. You can deliberately um, nurture your, your interoceptive awareness through exercises like the body scan, which involves paying, you know, non-judgmental, curious attention to what's happening in your body. 
and what psychologists call affect labeling, which is giving a name, simply giving a name, you know, to those sensations that you're feeling. And I have found in my own experience that by doing those things on a regular basis, you actually become much more in tune with that internal world, you know, and um, you, you do get access to almost a whole new channel of, of information and experience and wisdom when you're, when you're, when you remember that, that, that internal world is there, you know, in our busy days, it's so easy to be focused entirely on what's going on outside, but that flow of internal sensation is with us all the time. So what I thought was really interesting about um, about that research and your observations on it was, firstly, that, that it can be cultivated, but it be, can be cultivated fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like a long kind of lifelong practice of you know meditation or mindfulness mm-hmm. and so on, but actually the process of paying attention to, to those signals is actually the mechanism by which you build the sensitivity. It's not right. another thing that you have to do on top of it. It's like just pay attention and it start and, and you build the you build the intelligence, which I think was really interesting. Um, I, I practiced it all the way through the uh, the last year in terms of you know right from the beginning of COVID because it, it, it was one of those moments where I thought well I can actually start to to do this because I'm not traveling and so on so I'll I'll use the opportunity and I I found very quickly that it did have that impact. I felt mm. that I had a new interior consciousness. Mm-hmm. which picked up on things that I wasn't noticing otherwise. Yeah. And I think it was really interesting. It's not amazing because, um, you know, it's really the idea that mind and body are separate. That is, that is um, so wrong and so incorrect. And it's, we're taught that by our culture and we, we learn practices that, that sort of reinforce that separation, but the separation was never real in a sense, you know? So mm. as I said, that, that flow of internal sensations is always there. We just kind of need to have the skill and the awareness to tune into it. The other, the other thing that I just want you to, to, to pick up on is that the body knows before the mind mm. and that the mind is inherently restricted in its capacity to actually make sense of certain situations because it can only process a certain amount of pieces of information and the heuristics the biases that it employs to make those decisions quickly mean mm. that it has it has a, a fundamental limitation whereas the, the the body is not constrained it is mm-hmm. processing a much vaster amount of information mm-hmm. uh, and it knows more accurately and more uh, unfiltered can you talk yes. a little bit about that Yes, that's really fascinating research too. Originally launched by Antonio Damasio, the neuroscientist Antonio Damasio, who did this classic experiment involving uh, decks of cards in which participants were asked to turn over cards from from and choose from which decks to turn over cards and try to you know maximize their wins and minimize their losses. What they didn't know was that two decks were good; they had lots of rewards, and two decks were bad, meaning they held lots of penalties. And uh, as they were playing this game, their skin conductance was being measured. That's a measure of um, of their nervous system arousal. And what's so fascinating is that their nervous systems started um, flaring with, with you know, uh, arousal um, after just a few seconds of play and realizing uh, the, the body seemed to realize on some level that some decks were good and some decks were bad, but it took many, many more turns for the players in this experiment to consciously identify like, oh, I think those, 
I think these are the, the lucky decks and these are the unlucky ones, but, but their bodies were actually registering an awareness of this before um, their conscious minds were. And, and one more important piece of information that came from a subsequent study was that those people who had more interoceptive awareness, in other words, they were more attuned to their bodies where they made better choices um, in this game. So I think that's a beautiful illustration of how, yes, mm. the body sort of catches on more quickly than the, mm. than the brain because of the limits of, of conscious thought. And uh, it also appears to be that the body is sometimes more rational than the, than the conscious mind, which I love because we've been told for through centuries of Western culture that the body is irrational and the mind is this pure rational, you know, um, realm of, of, of cerebral activity. But it turns out that, you know, as we know from the work of, of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky and all those cognitive scientists who have pointed out how many um, cognitive biases and, and heuristics the conscious brain uses, the body isn't hampered or hobbled by those. So it can actually act in a, in a, in a more rational and less constrained fashion than, than the brain and its conscious processing. It's so fascinating to me. Um, yeah. I hadn't heard of interoception until I came across Lisa Feldman Barrett's work. And mm -hmm. until I read your book, I didn't, I hadn't really pondered the notion of cultivating you know, more awareness of what's going on. And so you mentioned the body scan, but I imagine for our listeners right now, they're thinking, I want to be more in tune to that. How do I do that? Is there some other thoughts and ideas you have about how we build more awareness of our interoceptive processes? Yeah, well, another uh, exercise that I mentioned in, in the book is keeping an interoceptive journal because, um, you know, it's not the case that the body always steers us right, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's sometimes that our, our body may overreact and, and um, go into sort of panic mode when that's not when that's not warranted, or, you know, or it may steer us toward a decision that ultimately turns out not to be the best one. So um, psychologists recommend keeping a journal a record of how you feel internally when you make decisions, and then returning to that journal, after you've had a chance to see how that decision plays out. And, um, and then looking for patterns in terms of when your body kind of steered you right, when it had the right idea, and when perhaps it was um, leading you in the wrong direction. And I can easily imagine someone who's doing investing, for example, um, doing this in quite a systematic way, you know, when you make your choices as to which, um, which stocks to invest in, you know, what, what, what is your body telling you and, and when and under what circumstances is your body a, a, an accurate guide? Yeah, and I just want to kind of remind listeners about a really fascinating conversation we had with John Cady, the, the economist. And he was trying to make the distinction between risk and uncertainty. And he was saying, well, when, when you're talk, dealing with risk and you have those financial models and probabilistic you know, analysis, then that rational thought process is fine. But when you're dealing with uncertainty, mm. actually, you do need to be able to tune into exactly what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, for an economist to say that is really interesting, <laughs> isn't it? Mm -hmm. So it is. it <laughs> so how the world is progressing. <laughs> yeah. Does that validation process, does that connect to your ideas around emotional reappraisal? Can you talk to us about mm -hmm. emotional reappraisal? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So emotional, so cognitive reappraisal is, um, is, um, a technique that 
builds on the fact that, um, and, and if, if you've talked to Lisa Feldman Barrett, then you've, you've heard about her very important work in this, in this realm, that um, emotions are actually, we actually construct emotions. Emotions are kind of like the end product. And at the beginning of that process are our, um, our, our very basic physical, physiological reactions, these internal cues and signals that we're talking about. And we take, the brain takes those bodily sensations and constructs an emotion out of them. But if you, if you think about it, lots of our emotions start with different emotions, start with the same basic physiological reaction. So for example, if you're about to take a high stakes exam, you may have a racing heart and, and sweaty palms and butterflies in your stomach, but you may feel exactly the same way waiting in line to go on a roller coaster, which is a, um, you know, an experience you're very much looking forward to and you're excited about. So Lisa Feldman Barrett and others have, have noted that um, we can kind of, get one, if we're aware of our internal sensations, paying attention to those, we can kind of get in on the ground level of constructing our own emotions. And we can, first of all, notice those internal sensations and then um, you know, intervene in that process of creating an emotion and saying to yourself, say before that, um, that high stakes exam or that, or that speech that, you know, public speaking that you're nervous about instead saying to yourself, I'm so excited. I'm so excited for this. This, these, these feelings I'm having are my body preparing me for a challenge. And it may sound um, as if that wouldn't work, but I have to say, I've tried it myself many times and it really does. Mm. And one reason that it works is that, you know, another uh, really ineffective strategy that that many of us uh, have adopted, and I certainly have done this in the past, is in a situation like that to to say to yourself, "Calm down, calm down," you know, just just calm down, and that's suppressing your your physiological reactions, your bodily reactions, and that that never works. Um, or trying to pretend that you are calm, but this uh, cognitive appraisal approach works with the feelings that you're actually having. You know, it it acknowledges them. And it uses them, it, it sort of harnesses them just by directing it in a, in a different and more positive and more constructive direction, which is much more effective, it turns out, than trying to pretend that you're not having those bodily feelings. The body always kinds of, kind of knows, <laughs> you mm. know. Yeah, and I think, again, you know, come back to this hope thing. When you have the model of hardwired emotional responses to you know the situation you find yourself in mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then you have no choice you have no mm -hmm. agency in that mm -hmm. you know like i feel fear because i'm taking this exam or public mm -hmm. speaking or you know my job appraisal mm -hmm. that's happening for a reason and the reason is the situation demands my brain creates that there is a real threat there is real fear to mm -hmm. be had mm -hmm. as opposed mm -hmm. to no you've got a, a physiological response that's creating you know, as you said, mobilizing a whole lot of resources for what is a, a mm -hmm. performance, a really difficult mm -hmm. challenge, mm -hmm. right? How, how do you choose to want to see that challenge? <laughs> so mm -hmm. again, mm -hmm. I think it just gives us more agency in the moment, doesn't mm. it? I, I really agree with that. Yes, it gives us a lot of new tools to work with. So let's move to thinking with movement because you, you share some really compelling research on this area mm -hmm. and including a story about a school that encourages children to move freely about and in the process has seen improved test scores so can you share about what happens to our thinking when we are moving and, and what's the ideal amount of movement what is it mm -hmm. for how does it all work together hmm. yeah you know this goes back to the fact that our our brains are 
they're by bi- their biological organ. They evolved, you know, in a certain kind of setting and that setting almost always involved movement. Even when we were um, thinking hard, we were also moving. So there's lots of activities that are, our ancient forebears in, uh, engaged in that involved, that involved both vigorous movement and complex thinking like foraging and hunting. And, you know, and it's, it's a oddity of, of modern life that we've separated those things. And we've, we've said, we've said to ourselves and others that when you think you should be still, you know, mm-hmm. you should be, you should be utterly still, don't move your body. That's how real thinking happens. And as it turns out, it takes up a fair amount of mental bandwidth to inhibit that natural urge to move, especially for children. So that's men- those are mental resources that you then don't have um, access to, uh, to apply to your work. So it actually makes sense to allow people to move. Um, and, I'm, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be big, uh, large movements. It can be these kind of micro movements that we tend to make when we're standing, for example. So this is one argument in favor of a standing desk or in favor of, of what, you you were um, you were mentioning Scott, which is an an activity permissive classroom, which is a mm. increasingly popular idea. Which um, is a classroom where students are allowed to um, they can sit at a desk if they want, but they can also um, sit on the floor or sit on an exercise ball. Or um, in some classrooms, there are um, things like a stationary bike that they can be pedaling on, and um, Teachers report and research has found that students are actually better able to focus. They're more alert, they're more energized, they're more attentive, you know, because we all know that kind of soporific, you know, drowsy state you get in when you're just Mm. sitting there, (laughs) maybe in a long meeting or something, and you haven't moved your body in a while. And it's just, you know, um, those micro movements actually keep us um, alert and energized and in that this sort of zone that we want to be in where we're paying optimal attention. And interestingly, fidgeting can play that same um, role. And I find it so interesting that fidgeting has kind of a bad name. You know, people think of it as, as sort of um, juvenile or, or maybe sort of shifty almost like, why can't you stay still? But in, but in fact, fidgeting is this very adaptive behavior that can finely tune our arousal again to get us into that um, that that ideal optimal zone of of, of paying attention, but also um, being uh, moving our bodies enough that we're kind of we're not falling into that drowsy um, that drowsy inattentive state. I feel so validated by you right now because my team has always given me such a hard time. I pace around the office. I have a little rubber ball. I bounce it on the walls, but I do my best thinking. If I'm sort of sitting there at a table, I get super fidgety. Mm-hmm. Um, also, my kids now all have these, you know, they, they, they swap fidget toys with their friends now. They, they have yes. like 25 fidget toys and, and they do seem to, when they're playing with them, you know, in, in, in a sort of learning environment, they do seem more focused actually while they're sort of popping the little the little fidgets. Yeah. Yeah. There's a researcher named Catherine Isbister who refers to this as embodied self-regulation, which I really like because when usually when we're talking about self-regulation, like, like managing our, our, our thoughts and our behavior, we're thinking of it as this internal resource that we have to sort of muster from within, like, okay, pay attention, focus, you know, and it's all mustered from within. And she's saying, no, actually we can regulate ourselves from without or, you know, from through the body um, Mm. and kind of use our bodies and the activities and movements of our bodies to affect the way the brain is operating, which I think is a really neat way to conceptualize it. 
And I'm sitting here holding this little fidget <laughs> toy while we talk. <laughs> so beyond fidgeting, um, you know, related to movement, you got me thinking differently about the role of gestures. And it was intuitive when I read it, but but it kind of rang true in a different way when you talk about how language is linear, that one word sort of follows mm-hmm. another, and mm-hmm. that gesture is holistic and more immediate, mm-hmm. um, and that the original language of man was through gesturing. So how right. do gestures impact our thinking, and, and do you have thoughts about the, the role they should play in our in our lives? Yeah, well, as you noted just then, Scott, um, gesture can do things that that um, verbal language can't, you know, can capture, as you say, this sort of holistic meaning in a way that language is actually quite plotting and just one word after another, you know. And um, again, as with fidgeting, we tend to be dismissive about gesture as if it's just hand waving and like it's almost a little bit gauche to be, you know, moving Mm -hmm. your hands around too much, which is really a mistake because um, gesture is like, it's, it's very tightly integrated with language, but it's also its own channel of communication and of thinking. I mean, this is the other thing is if we don't dismiss gesture outright, then we might believe that it's really just about communicating our thoughts to other people. And it does have that very important function, but gesture, our own gestures actually aid our own thinking. And so when people are gesturing, their their language tends to be more more fluent and more coherent um, because gesturing, you know, interestingly, our most advanced and our most cutting edge and our newest ideas tend to show up in our gestures uh, a few seconds, a few milliseconds before they show up in our speech. It's like, our hands are trying to sort of get their, literally get our hands around an idea before we're really able to put words to the idea. And then we can sort of read off our own hands and that can inform our, our verbal accounts. So people are actually inhibited from thinking and understanding and solving problems when they're prevented from, from gesturing, gesturing and using their hands. So we actually want to encourage that as much as possible in ourselves and other people. That's fascinating. I, 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 it, it, it recalls a memory I have of a, of a person I work with who's incredibly creative and mm-hmm. does a lot of gesturing. Mm-hmm. And I remember mm-hmm. once yeah. when they were struggling to articulate something and they were doing this thing where they were kind of like doing this. And I'm going, what is it? You, just what are you doing? <laughs> and I'm trying to get this idea out of the box. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't even aware that that's what they were doing, but and and then it kind of right. came out, and they were like, "Oh, oh I got it." <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's great. Oh my! Here on the Evolving Leader, we are committed to stretching the leadership conversation in every episode, and we invite you to help spread the word. If you have learned or been inspired by something you heard on this podcast, chances are others would too please consider sharing your favorite episode with your network on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. Thanks for listening. So we can we move to the next ring of extending the intelligence out of the mind to our surroundings? Yes, absolutely. And this is somewhere where um, I find it very useful to think about the, the metaphors we use to think about the brain. And one of the most common and pervasive, you know, it shows up all the time in how we talk and how we think, 
uh, metaphors or analogies for how we understand the brain is we think of the brain as a computer. And that's led to all kinds of advances in cognitive science and in you know, artificial intelligence. But in many ways, it's a really limited and limiting metaphor because there's so many ways in which the brain is quite different from a computer. And that really shows up in this matter of how our surroundings affect the way we think. You know, a computer works exactly the same. My laptop works the same here in my home office as if I were to take it to the park across the street. But the human brain is not like that. It's it's exquisitely context sensitive. So where we are really affects how we think. And one of the um, clearest examples of that is um, spending time in nature. You know, it turns out that. Um, the way we spend our time um, day to day, you know, focusing with this very kind of hard edged concentration on our work, spending time inside, spending time in urban settings, these are all very draining activities for the brain. Whereas being outside, which of course is the place where human beings evolved, um, is, is very restorative of our attention. And that's because the kinds of uh, information and stimuli that we encounter when we're outside are very easy for the brain to process. You know, it's effortless for the brain to take in uh, a natural scene. And what the brain finds easy to process, it also finds pleasant. So that helps explain why we often mm. feel a, a mood boost when we go outside. And, you know, I noticed that we spend so much time thinking about uh, how we direct our attention, how we manage our attention, how our attention is being distracted. In other words, we're thinking about the demands on our attention, but we don't think so much about the supply of our attention and how we're sort of refilling that tank. Um, and it mm. turns out that being outside and just spending some time outside, allowing our attention to be diverted in a sort of pleasantly effortless way outside, that's a really great way to refill the tank and then come back to your work in a refreshed State. What did what, what what has been most surprising in all of this for you? Where you've kind of gone, oh wow! I because I mean you've studied um, mm -hmm. this area for a very long time. What in, in in writing this book has really been a profound kind of aha moment for you? Yeah, well, I I've been a freelance writer for twenty something years, which means I've I was working at home long before COVID. You know, yeah. uh, working alone mostly. You know, w apart from occasional check-ins with editors, and I was very surprised, to be honest, by what I learned about the the social nature of of um, not just communicating, but the kinds of thinking that we imagine to be done that we usually do alone, like reasoning and um, imagining and planning and thinking that all, the, all those kinds of thinking are, um, are aided by social interaction. And I've really tried to incorporate that into my own life. You know, I write about the importance of, or the value of social uh, activities like storytelling and teaching other people and debating and arguing, you know, and um, again, I, I keep returning to this theme, but in Western culture, we think of intellectual life as being over here and social life being over here as if those two are separate and um, even opposed in some way. You know, we do our thinking all day at work and that, then we go for a drink with our colleagues after, after work. That's when social life happens. But in fact, you know, human beings are so fundamentally social and we're social all the time, not just... Um, you know, at lunch or or um, or at a party, and so the 
thing we should be thinking about is how do we harness the power of that social brain that we all have inherited in the service, you know, of learning and working. And um, instead of excluding our social selves from the workplace, how do we bring that in in constructive ways that that really enhance our thinking? How has it changed you? And, you know, what are the kind of things that you've kind of thought, I, I'm going to do that now? Um, or I'm going to learn, you know, I'm going to learn how to do that. What what have you yeah. changed? Well, I, you know, I always say that writers write what they need to learn because I, mm. I entered this project as a very, what Andy Clark, the philosopher calls a brain bound person, meaning I, I adhered to this idea that thinking happens in the brain and that mature, you know, advanced thinkers do the, do thinking inside their heads, you know, and we, we do tend to, do way too much in our heads. That's what I've come to realize. And that was this realization was motivated by the research that I reviewed on what's known as cognitive offloading. And that is the process of getting thoughts out of your head and putting them on physical in physical space in some way, whether that's like a big whiteboard or a bunch of post-it notes or like a multi-monitor setup where you have um, lots of, of screens instead of just one little screen. And when we do that, we can relate to that information in a different way. You know, um, we can bring all these embodied resources that are such a strength of human intelligence to bear on this information and ideas because we can manipulate um, those ideas and information as if they're physical objects, or we can navigate them as if they're like a 3D landscape. And so all these resources like spatial memory and proprioception, which is our awareness of where our bodies are in space, um, can be applied to our thinking. And if we, if we keep all those thoughts in our head, all those, all those resources and strengths get wasted. So let's draw on then your the last part of your book in thinking mm-hmm. in groups, particularly in re- reference to the challenges facing leaders around COVID and the decision to bring people back and when to work at home and when to work in, in a collaborative physical space. What, what are your insights there? Yes. Yeah, this is a tough one because I think we have realized that a lot can be done, of course, on on video platforms like the one we're using right now. But I have a very strong bias um, that emerges out of reading the research in favor of in-person interaction. Um, and yet, I don't think that we need in-person interaction all the time. In fact, one of the ideas that I report on the, in the book is, is called intermittent collaboration. I talk about the value of intermittent collaboration. And it turns out that people who work alone in an isolated kind of way uh, tend to come up with uh, one or two really great ideas and a bunch of bad ideas, losers, you know, because they haven't been bouncing their ideas off of other people. But people who are in touch with their colleagues all the time on a continual basis, they come up with a whole bunch of ideas that are just sort of mediocre, you know, because of the social pressure to arrive at a consensus. And the best of both worlds is achieved by people who kind of oscillate between um those, those immersive and isolated um, think, periods of thinking on their own, and then, um, you know, collaborating and communicating with their teammates. So I'm thinking that, you know, a hybrid kind of setup that where people work at home and use that as their, as their protected ta- their time when they're, they're, they're protected from social pressures and also from distractions, 
but then they come into the office and that's very consciously and intentionally set up as a time when people are having those collisions, those, um, those interactions that spark new ideas and um, that kind of cross, you know, cross disciplinary, cross team um, fertilization. So, uh, you know, we're all working this out on the fly, but I think there's some potential there for, to support um, really intelligent ways of working. Hmm. What's next for you, Annie? <laughs> oh, gosh, you know, there's something that I wrote about in the book that really, I really haven't been able to let go of. And that is um, this idea of extension inequality. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we talk about wealth inequality and income inequality. Um, but once the world of the extended mind was open to me, once I began thinking of thinking as involving all these raw materials rather than just sheer brain power. It, it was unavoidable to me to see that, you know, um, our access to these raw materials of thinking is in no way equitably distributed. So I'm talking about the freedom to move your body or access to green spaces or contacts with, um, you know, uh, esteemed mentors and, and accomplished peers. You know, these are not things that we all have equal access to, and yet they affect our thinking so profoundly. They affect how intelligent we are. I think, I think we can say that. And yet we insist on measuring intelligence as if it's a lump of something that's inside our skull. That's the brain-bound perspective. So um, I've been thinking that I really want to address this question of extension inequality um, and sort of um, challenge that blind spot we have for the the role of of extra neural outside the brain resources in thinking and and point out that um, we have a lot more work to do to make access to those kinds of outside the brain resources um, anything like equal. I love that. Yeah, that's very exciting. You've given us so much to think about and you know, we've only scratched the surface and I, and, and we really want to encourage each of our listeners to, to order a copy of the extended mind, but is there anything else you would, you would add and leave us with today? Yes. I would just say that, um, we tend to retreat into our brains when we're in a workspace, when we're in our professional selves, as if the brain is, 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 um, is the main event. And I would, I would encourage people to remember that they are whole people, you know, to embrace the whole of their humanity and, and all the, the strengths that we bring with us as whole people, meaning um, embodied creatures who are embedded in a physical environment, who are connected to other people. And um, those things are the wellspring of human intelligence. We shouldn't be mm. trying to be like biological computers, you know, because our our very our unique form of intelligence is really it really draws from those um, those human realities. So if we can bring our whole selves into work and not think that we have to leave those things behind, you know, I think that um, we actually will become more intelligent and more effective when we um, when we recognize our, our true nature as human beings. Well, in an increasingly automating world, I think that's a really powerful <laughs> message be more human. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Annie, thank you so much. It's been fascinating. Yes. Um, thank you. You've, you've thank been very you. generous in giving us uh, a lot of insight into your book. Thank mm, you, yes. guys. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Until next time, remember, the world is evolving. Are you? Are you?